0: bother too many people here well uh, we'll get started here I apologize for the the delay um, but hopefully that's the only delay for tonight let's um, let's begin by coming to for our gracious and eternal God we come before you with thanksgiving. Father, thankful that your mercies have been new to us even in this day. Mindful, Father, that every good gift that we received, every mercy that we've enjoyed, we have enjoyed only through free grace. We have merited no good thing from your hand. And even now, Father, as we come to the close of another day, we recognize it as no small thing. That we may contemplate sublime truths. That we may sit under the word of God, that we may contemplate the rule of our princely and our lovely Redeemer, and we ask, Father, that even now, though our aim is to have our minds renewed and enlightened, that really our hearts would be moved as well. Bless us, gracious God, and bless each one. We pray that this would be a blessed time. And so we ask all these, all these things, in Jesus' name and for His sake together with the pardon of our many sins. All right. Well, guys, just a few kind of housekeeping uh, or announcements uh, before we begin here. I, I threaten, I suppose is the right word, to give homework. Some stage in this class, and I've not done it so far. So I, uh, I'm going to give you some homework Um, before we come to our last class at the end of the month. So the homework is just reading, and uh, it's reading directly from the testimony. So there are two chapters that I want you to read before we come together um, again on the 24th of this month. So the first chapter, um, unsurprisingly, is chapter 1 that I'd like you to read. And then also, I would like you to read as well, um, it would be chapter 4. So chapters 1 and chapter 4. Um, those are the two chapters that would be helpful if you had read um, before before we come together again. But that being said, um, uh, that is uh, this is our penultimate uh, class uh, for uh, Communicant Church membership. Um, so our next meeting will be on the twenty fourth of this month. And as I said the last time that we were together, um, our focus. As we look really at uh, the testimony together in the last class and this class, is on the subject of distinctives. So this class is going to be our last class really looking at the distinctive principles of the church. And I'll say before I even begin here that we could do many more classes uh, on all of these themes. Uh, So... If you do have any questions that are not addressed in this lecture, one that won't surprise me at all, because we're, we're really going to be going at a 30,000 rather than a 3,000 foot kind of view this evening. Um, so do stop me if there are things you don't think I'm going to address. If you'd like to ask any questions, please, please feel free to do so. So as we begin, I just want to review a few definitions that we've already given um, so far. And then the first is probably the most basic. It's our working definition of what Communicate Church membership is. And that is just this, that an individual is solemnly admitted into full membership in a particular church upon profession of faith and an avowed submission to Christ's institutions as observed in it. So what we're talking about here, of course, is not membership in terms of one's baptism. We're talking about one's personal submission to Christ and personal and public confession of their faith in Him. And also, that third line, and this is why our distinctives are coming in um, to our classes and church membership, it is also a moment in which the individual vows submission before God and inward to the church which they are joining. So that brings us then to the aspect of, of our church distinctives, and as we look at this, I've gotten ahead of myself, apparently. But as we look at this, we're using certain definitions to help us think about what distinctives are. What it means to be a unique church, a unique visible church. And the first definition that we've given is what we would call, perhaps, uh, the most general definition. Uh, The one definition of distinctives that you'll find probably in the back of everybody's mind when we talk about it. And that is just that these distinctives, generally taken, are principles embodied in the Church's Constitution, regarded as necessary in order to maintain a faithful testimony to Christ's interests in a particular land, and are not adhered to by another. So, when we think about this, you remember, last time we were together, we could further divide this definition into two other categories. We can talk about distinctives as they are acquired. And what we mean by this, as we have on the board here, these are principles maintained by a communion that are absolutely or largely rejected. Or largely rejected by others. But were not originally maintained or distinct to said communion. So you remember last time we were together we took up the subject of acquired distinctives. And principally our focus was on our distinctive of worship. Right? So, exclusive acapella psalm singing, that would fall under this category. Um, it was certainly maintained by our forebears, but when we were constituted as a particular church, it was not unique to ourselves. Uh, the practice was widely maintained beyond ourselves and even for some considerable time. So, when we think about exclusive acapella psalmody, when we think about those kinds of ideas, aspects of the regular principle of worship, they certainly could be considered distinctives, but they really need to fall under this category. We do not exist as a Reformed Presbyterian Church in our original constitution because of our worship practices alone. That brings us then to the question of, well, why then do we exist? Historically. That brings us to the subject of original distinctives. And so I'll just read the definition to you quickly here. So these are principles... Uniquely maintained by a communion at its inception. Obviously the emphasis is on that last part. At its inception. And regarded as necessary in order to maintain a faithful testimony to Christ's interest in the land. And so necessitating its initial formal separation from other communions. Okay, so put very, very simply. When we think about original distinctives in in relation to ecclesiastical formation, in relation to denominations that continue to this day, when we think about original distinctives, we're really asking the question, why did we ever come into existence in the first place? Why did we not just kind of happily go along with whatever major body that we were once a part of and just continue in that body? Why is it that we exist? That question is really the question we're taking up tonight. So we took up the subject of uh, exclusive acapella psalm singing as a distinctive in the former sense. We're coming now really this evening, and again, um, we're coming at this subject from 40,000 feet, um, really looking at a very broad overview of our distinctive principles as they were original to us federal our inception. So the question that we have to ask even before we launch into these original distinctives, is a really basic one. Why as a Christian do we need to give ourselves to this kind of reflection? And you remember I've been setting in front of you this one text time and time again because I think it's so crucial. Um, I I told you in our very first class that when I think about um, my task um, when it comes to, to leading folks through thinking about church membership in this way. I don't look at my job primarily as, as trying to persuade you to come in. I, I think there's, there's an aspect in which every pastor feels that obligation. Um, and I suppose in one sense, as I'm so hoping to show from the Word of God why we are what we are, uh, that you see the reason for it and are inclined toward it. But, but I really see my purpose this evening and throughout all of these classes... As showing you not just what you should believe, but showing you that the Reformed Presbyterian Church, as we exist, have attained those truths from the Word of God, and therefore, uh, we are not schismatic, and and therefore, our reason for existence is quite legitimate. Okay, so, so, when we look at that, when we look at these classes in that way, there is one text that really undergirds this, and that is the Apostolic Command. Whereto we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us mind the same thing. That's Philippians 3.16. And again, I know I stressed this already, so I apologize for the kind of redundancy here, but note how the Apostle conveys this command in the first place. Whereunto we. There's the corporate aspect of the command. Where to, we have already attained. There's the historical aspect. They have already attained these things as a corporate body. And attainment of itself is significant, isn't it? Because he's saying these things are things that you have acquired. These are things that you have attained to over time and by God's grace. And the command then is this whatever you have attained as a body. Again, the command is. Let us walk by the same rule. Let us mind the same thing. And so that's how we're going to be looking at our original distinctives this evening. Uh, Seeing them as things that have been attained by the church. And showing that these things are necessary. So necessary that our distinct existence is certainly legitimate. So as we come to the subject, uh, what I really would like to do is I'd like to set before you just... ...in broadest broadest terms... ...these distinctives... ...under the most... ...probably the most basic... ...category of thought that I can bring. And that is just the idea... ...of this mediatorial kingship... ...or mediatorial dominion... ...of Jesus Christ. And we're really thinking about this... ...as it is... ...a distinctive principle. And I really need to emphasize that last point. We are thinking about these themes ...under this broader category of the mediatorial dominion of Christ. But we're really thinking about these things as we hold the mediatorial dominion in a unique way, in a way that other churches do not. And and why is that important? Well, let's start by just looking at the definition that comes to some kind of answer. The definition that we're going to work with this evening is really simple. When we're talking about Christ's kingship or mediatorial dominion, we're thinking of the supreme authority and rule of the Son of God Sorry, guys. Over all things in the office of Redeemer. Okay, so let me read that again. The supreme authority and rule of the Son of God over all things in the office of Redeemer. I'm not quite sure why it's doing that. There we go. So, that's quite straightforward in many ways. Now, what I want to do now is. First of all, I want you to keep that definition in the back of your mind. And I want to set before you three different categories of people who would say in one sense they don't have any problem with that definition. Let me read you the first one. Men, good and bad, are under the government of Christ as God, who is Lord of all. He not only is King of saints, but even those who who are the sons of Belial. Now, who is that? You might be surprised to find out that man is John Gill. That is, Baptist, esteemed Baptist pastor and Scripture commentator. Let me read you another quote. From the beginning of Christian history, the assertion of Christ's lordship over the world and over history, has implicitly recognized that man should not submit his personal freedom in an absolute manner to any earthly power, but only to God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What's interesting is this is part of a statement that falls under the explanation of why we refer to Christ as Lord. This quote is drawn from the current... Catechism of the Roman Catholic Church. They see the Lordship of Jesus Christ as being universal and in some sense commanding men today. Such that no one, this is rather ironic, isn't it? That no man on earth has the right to claim absolute obedience from any other man. Only men should give absolute obedience to Jesus Christ. Now, That brings us to a really strange phenomenon that um, I almost left out, but I think it's important for us to see this. If you don't know who this man is, that's okay. You don't really need to know him. I'm not a very close, close follower of Kanye West. But in 2019, this was an incredible, incredible moment as far as American Christianity is concerned. Kanye West, with a number of other major figures in pop culture, got together and they came under the banner... Strikingly, this banner being called Jesus' is King. That sounds really wonderful, doesn't it? The concert halls were basically rented out. You had the likes of Justin Bieber. You had all kinds of other um, characters, all of them supporting this thing. This banner that Jesus is King. Now, when you and I think about this, one... I think perhaps there were some who said, this seems like a good thing. Um, I even had come, come up to me at one stage and say, isn't it great that Kanye West is doing this? Um, after my mouth dropped, <laughs> I, did, I did come up with an answer. And the, and the answer that I came up with is, well, in one sense, of course, who could complain that the statement itself is wrong? But, as we're going to see, hopefully in the next couple of moments, the way in which actually all three of these ones who are talking about the kingship of Christ do so, do so in a way that is radically different than, of course, how we're going to refer to it, because we believe the scriptures hold it in a different sense as well. Um, and yeah, no, I, I am not a close follower of pop culture, but it is a striking thing, isn't it, uh, that even the kingship of Christ now is on the lips of some of the most godless in our society. It's a striking thing. Now, I want us to think about the kingship of Christ this evening by talking about these different views. Because it's important for me to set these truths in front of you now. Because I think Reform Presbyterians have a tendency to say, well, the mediatorial kingship of Christ is a distinctive. Well, guys, what I've just read to you in these three quotes, oh, a, a, a really conservative Baptist commentator, the current Roman Catholic Church, and a pop star, all would say that they believe in the mediatorial kingship of Christ. So obviously, when we are talking about our distinctive principles, simply saying the mediatorial dominion of the Redeemer is of itself insufficient. And I want to illustrate that, reiterating myself in some sense, I want to illustrate that by going through the various formulations of this doctrine, As we have it in history. So take first of all the Roman Catholic view. So again as Roman Catholics will say. Jesus Christ is king. They will say that he is universal king. He is king and head of the church by the way. Uh, I think sometimes Protestants get their wires crossed here. Yes. Roman Catholics believe that Jesus Christ is universal king. Over the nations. And over the church. But in what sense? Okay so. So. On your left hand, you have the Bishop of Rome. On the right hand, you have the civil magistrate. Christ, who is universal king, gives two swords to the world. Now, these swords represent forms of dominion. And I want you to notice this. This is coming to us really through Pope Galatius, a 7th century figure. He articulates it this way that the sword is not secular and civil. Okay? We often think about the two swords in that way. That's not how Rome teaches this. There are two swords that are equally spiritual and temporal. And what, what the kingship of Christ means, for Roman Catholics is, is that these two swords, that are both temporal and spiritual, have been vested, first of all, in the bishop of Rome. The Pope. Now, notice the hierarchy. Christ, the kingship of Christ for Roman Catholic means that the Pope of Rome has received both swords of power from Christ as king, and then, then the Pope can give one of those swords to the civil magistrate. Okay, so uh, we're going to see this in the next lecture, but on December 25th, the year 800, there was a striking thing that took place. What do, you guys, do you guys remember what that event was? The year 800, December 25th. Charlemagne, exactly. And there was a striking painting, probably the, one that the painting that's most associated with this event, where Charlemagne, before he sits on the throne, kneels before the Pope of Rome, as the Pope of Rome places the crown on Charlemagne's head. In a symbolic way, that is precisely the formulation that we have in front of us. Christ, as King, has vested both swords of authority in the Church, and the Church then may freely, and according to her own volition, give that sword to another body, i.e. the civil master. So guys, the implication from this is pretty basic, isn't it? Let's say you have an unruly king, the king just doesn't quite, quite like the pope. Well, that means then that the bishop of Rome can simply take back the sword. Simply can unking a magistrate. We see this. We see this throughout Christian history. Uh, We see this even even after Vatican II, even in the current Roman Catholic teaching. So, for Roman Catholics, the kingship of Christ means something very basic. It means that Jesus Christ, as King, has vested all authority in the Church, and the Church possesses one sword that is both temporal and spiritual, and may also give another sword to the civil magistrate, and reclaim that sword should the civil magistrate, in the eyes of Rome, no longer be worthy to hold it. That's the mediatorial kingship as formulated in Rome. There's another way of formulating as well. And this is something that's prominent among Protestants even. So, if that's the Roman view, this is what we would call the Erastian view. And and again, I want you to notice two things that all have just changed on the screen. So, the first thing that changed is, of course, the hierarchy. Right? So, before, who was on top? Well, of course, it was the Church of Rome, as personified really in the bishop. But now in this case, the civil magistrate takes all. But I also want you to notice something else. As you're looking here, the sword on your right is not identical with the sword on the left. You see, in this formulation, there are not two swords that are equally spiritual and temporal. There is one sword that is temporal, and then there is one sword that is spiritual. There is one dominion that is purely temporal, concerns only physical things, temporal matters in this life, and there is another sword that is dealing exclusively with spiritual concerns. Now, Thomas Erastus was a man who was really a second-generation reformer. Um, If you'd like to call him a reformer, at least he lived among those... Uh, the likes of John Calvin and others, uh, whether or not Thomas Erastus held an every point to what I'm going to explain to you is really not the issue, uh, because by the time you get to the middle of the 17th century, there were people who were calling themselves Erastians who did hold what I'm about to articulate, and and I hope you'll see that uh, this position is certainly not not old. So, want you to notice again, the kingship of Christ in this case means. ...that two swords have come to the earth. It's rather straightforward. But these two swords have been lodged in the civil magistrate. The implication, of course, is the civil magistrate... ...is the ultimate authority on earth in matters spiritual and temporal. Now, the implication for that is really almost identical to the implication... That you have, of course, in the previous case. Sorry. The civil magistrate can then give to the church that spiritual sword. Allow the church to rule spiritually. Now, of course, if the civil magistrate does that, then they are also at liberty, are they not? To take it back. This is crucial, right? Because... Supposedly, we're going to come up to a moment where you're going to have a man say in in, in front of an on-looking world that he is king and head of what? Speaking of Charles here. The church. So, what I've articulated to you here is the view of the Church of England and of the Church of Ireland. To this day, the king, as a civil magistrate, in this formulation, has been given both swords, temporal and spiritual, by Christ. Guys, I, I really want to emphasize this. If you went to a person in the Church of England and said, you believe in the perfect mediator or kingship of Christ, an astute Erastian is going to say exactly the same thing. They will say that Jesus Christ is king and head of the church. But that as king and head of the church he has vested that authority in the civil magistrate. I'm emphasizing this in part to show you that really, really when we think about the mediator of kingship our language needs to be a bit tighter. Because these formulations are obviously not the position that we hold ourselves. that brings us to the question well then what is the position that we maintain? Well, first of all, as as you saw in the previous slide, we were talking about the Unios Regnum. That is, the one kingdom. So in the Roman and in the Eurasian form, there is one kingdom that Christ has established that either has the Pope as its head or the civil magistrate at its head. In this case, there are two kingdoms that the Lord God has ordained. And so you notice here that there is not the same hierarchy. Instead of a hierarchy, you have parity. Now, the question is, of course, what does that mean? Well, again, we would speak of this as Christ giving two swords. And again, note the two kinds of swords. They're not identical swords. Okay, So this is very different in the Church of Rome. We believe in one sword that is temporal, another sword that is spiritual. And Christ has given the spiritual sword immediately to the church. The temporal sword immediately, in a sense, as we work through um, some of the nuances of how the magistrate comes to power, he gives that sword to the civil magistrate. Now, so far that's all well and good. But, there's also, among those who would hold to the two kingdom, another view that we wouldn't espouse. So, Menno Simons said, that's fine, there are two swords. One sword belongs to the church, the other belongs to the civil magistrate. But these swords function absolutely differently. Not just in the exercise of their power, but with regard to the subjects that they deal with. What I mean by that is this Menno Simons and Anabaptists, really through the running centuries, have said, that the mediatorial kingship of Christ means that the church is under the spiritual jurisdiction of the church itself. And Christ has given the physical, the secular sword to the civil magistrate simply for unbelievers. Okay, so the Anabaptist position is very basic. What law does a Christian have to obey? What authority does a Christian recognize? Only One. That which is in the church. The civil magistrate has nothing to do with the Christian. That is the historic Anabaptist I mean, uh, idea. And so the, the, the spiritual sword concerns the elect only. The temporal sword concerns only the pagans. Our view of the editorial kingship of Christ is absolutely different. Our view, of course, is that the spiritual sword belongs to the church, the temporal sword belongs to the magistrate, but both, and this is crucial, both have significant impact on the lives of the elect and the reprobate together. These are the only two authorities given among men if you subsume the family underneath the magistrate, as I believe you should. These are the only two, as it were, sons of oil that the Lord has given, as given to us in Zechariah 4. These are the two veins of authority. Now, when we think about the mediatorial kingship, then, as we think about Christ as he is king over church and over the nations, we need to make some distinctions. So the first distinction is we need to distinguish between the essential. And the economic kingship of Christ, and what I mean by essential is I'm, I'm talking about that dominion that God exercises over thi- over all things as He is God. So when we're talking about the absolute or the essential dominion of the Lord, we're not speaking about any of the one any of the persons of the Trinity and dis- distinguished from the other. This is a dominion that belongs to all three persons of the Godhead by virtue of their deity. So, when we think about this, uh, for instance, Psalm 47. Psalm 47 holds this out very pointedly. God, says the text, God is king of all the earth. And when the, the psalmist is referring to God in this case, it's striking he doesn't refer here, he doesn't refer to him as Jehovah. He says, for God is the king of all the earth. The idea that there is, is that God reigns over the heathen, God sits upon the throne of his holiness, the princes of the people are gathered together, even the people of God. And the idea that the psalmist is bringing here is the idea that, very pointedly, God as God is, of course, supreme in authority and in rule. Now, when we think about it in those terms, we think about we can think about it further into other ways. The essential dominion of God is really, first of all, flowing from His eminence. You remember... When you come to the Fifth Commandment, the Decalogue teaches us that anyone who is superior to ourselves in gifts or in graces is to be regarded as our superior and treated as such. Well, the idea that's behind there is that the eminence of God really can also be brought into view. God because of his because of his deity, because of his divine supremacy is necessarily ruler and possesses supreme prerogative. Now, the other idea there is too that God possesses this prerogative also because he has created all things. He who is maker is ruler over that which he has made. Now, as we think about this though, of course, any one of the three persons of the Godhead and of course the Godhead entire is then necessarily necessarily pronounced Lord overall, King overall. But that's not the kingship, that's not the dominion that we have in here this evening. We have instead the economic or the mediatorial dominion of Christ. And how does that how does that look in relation to the essential? Well, first of all, when we are thinking about the economic or the mediatorial dominion, we are thinking about something that belongs uniquely to the person of the Son of God as he stands in his office as Redeemer. Now, I would say that we could go considerable length here to talk about the offices of Christ as Redeemer. There are three offices, of course, we know. There is Christ as prophet, Christ as priest, and, of course, Christ as king. Uh, this is referred to historically as the Nuno Triplex, And really, these three offices set before us really the sum total of all of Christ's work as our mediator. And part of that work, as I've just said, is to be mediatoric king. Now, as we compare this with the essential kingship, there are a couple of observations we can make. First of all, this is something that comes to Christ's as according to the divine decree he is he occupies rather the office of redeemer this is not something that is possessed by nature in the Godhead but this is something that is as it were delegated to use the older theological terms to Christ why is that important do you think one of the reasons why it's important to make that distinction very clear Is because our redemption. Securing our redemption. And so functioning in any of the three offices. That Christ holds as Redeemer. Was not necessary for the glory of God. In the sense that. If God had decided not to redeem a single man. In no sense. Was the intrinsic glory of God diminished. This is a free act of God's grace. Every aspect of it is. So. This is a delegated office. This is not something that is essential. This is something that belongs not to all three persons of the Godhead. This is something that belongs only to the second person, the Son of God, as He is Redeemer. The absolute dominion, the essential dominion of God, as we thought about before, is everlasting. And it functions in the same way through all ages. The mediatorial kingship of Christ is also everlasting but will change as we saw in 1 Corinthians 15 its mode of operation. The dominion lasts forever but its mode of function will change. The first, the essential dominion of God is essential of course to his nature. The economic or mediatorial dominion of Christ is an act of free grace. The former of course, is natural, the latter, is delegated. And so, when we look at this, it's important for us to understand what we're saying. When we are speaking here of the mediatorial kingship of Christ, we're speaking of something that comes to us out of the covenant of grace, comes to us as something that God has graciously given, and and so something that then belongs to our doctrine of salvation. So, when we think about the dominion of Christ, then there are three further ways that we can think about it. We think about it as it is providential, as it is subsidiary, and as it is moral. Now, I want to spend some time briefly just looking at these three categories. Um, If you have your Bibles with you, uh, certainly you can feel free to turn, um, because I'll be citing a good number of texts at this point. before we begin looking at the texts, I want you to just look at those three categories for a moment. We are saying that not as the Son of God is the second person of the Trinity and God of God, light of light, very God of very God, co equal with the Father, and, and all of those things true and necessarily then belongs to Christ, and so, of course, Christ in that regard is possessed of eternal and unchanging authority and dominion. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about something that Christ possesses personally as he is redeemer, as he is mediator. And we're saying here, in these three categories, that he is mediatorial king with regard to all three. Providentially, in a subsidiary sense, and also in a supreme and moral sense as well. So, Let's take the first category here, the providential aspect of Christ's kingship. This, before we begin, is referring, of course, to the idea that as mediatorial king, Christ is Lord of Providence. We see this in a number of texts. Let me just read to you two. The first is from Hebrews 2, verses 5 to 9. Here the writer, from writer of the epistle here, says thus, he says, What is man that thou art mindful of him? Or the Son of Man, and thou visitest him; thou madest him a little lower than the angels; thou crownest him with glory and honor, and didst set him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. Now, that's where the quotation ends. Who can tell me here what what the apostle is quoting from? Psalm eight, exactly. Now the now the inspired apostle interprets he writes for in that he put all in subjection under him he left nothing that is not put under him but now we see not yet all things put under him he's referring there to man he says here man you and I after the fall we he says here we do not see all things put under man Adam. But then he writes this. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man, etc. I want you to notice, strikingly, what the Apostle has just done. He takes us to Psalm 8. Which is a psalm that preeminently holds before us man. As he is to exercise dominion over the lesser creatures. And then the apostle says we don't see that, do we? Not among the likes of us. But what do we see? We see Jesus crowned. Entailment, folks, is so very simple, isn't it? Christ is the one who, in reality, is the focus of Psalm 8. It is Christ, here the apostle says, very pointedly. It is Christ who exercises this dominion. Take Ezekiel 1.26. Above the firmament that was over their heads was the likeness of a throne, as the appearance of a sapphire stone. And upon the likeness of the throne was the likeness as the appearance of a man. Above it. Now, what's striking about that text is you remember there the prophet is shown these visions of chariots and chariots in the heavens. And, and as you look throughout the scriptures, you'll see that all of those images hold out one very basic truth to the prophet. You, you remember this prophet who's in Babylon, but this prophet who who is an exile himself. The entailment of Ezekiel one is that the Lord God of Providence rules even in Babylon. He has a throne that is even over the furthest parts of the world. If, if, if the prophet had the idea that God was only sovereign in Jerusalem, only sovereign in Israel this vision set very pointedly before him that the throne of God extends over all things. But what's striking is, the prophet doesn't only see a throne. Our forebears, really right through the running centuries, make note of this. Calvin very pointedly and helpfully does. In Ezekiel 1, when the prophet sees the likeness of the Son of Man, you and I are supposed to see there the Lord Jesus Christ. The entailment is that Christ... As Redeemer, as our incarnate Savior, He is the one who sits upon that throne of dominion that rules even over Babylon. He is the Lord of providence and universally so, as we'll see in just a moment. Now, that brings us to our second point. This kingship that we're considering here has a subsidiary aspect to it as well. Now, when I say subsidiary, what I mean by that is, this is a kingship that has a particular purpose. Uh, The the dominion, of course, of God, the absolute, the essential dominion of, of God, of course, has the purpose that all things will be ruled for the glory of God. But when we think about the mediatorial kingship of Christ, there is not another end, but an end that brings us to that greater end that's in view. What I mean by that is what you have in Ephesians one. I want you to notice what the Apostle says there in verses twenty and following. He says, When he that is Christ when God raised him that is Christ from the dead, and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come, and hath put all things under his feet. And gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him, that filleth all in all. Now, what the Apostle is saying here is, is profound. He looks at Christ enthroned. And as he looks at our enthroned Redeemer, he says all things have been set under him. All things that are under his rule and scepter. But did you catch that point that I was emphasizing? So what you have there in verse 1-3. The text reads that he is head over all things to the church. Now, if you go back just to our first point that we made here. Christ's dominion is such that he is Lord of the Providence. He is the one who Ezekiel beheld sitting on the throne that went over all the corners of the earth. Ephesians 1 tells us that his dominion is for the good of the church. He rules and is head over all things to the church, says the Apostle. Now why is it so crucial? It's crucial because in many ways, beloved. I think we often forget this, but, but this really gives us the reason for the likes of those promises that we find throughout Scripture, like Romans eight twenty eight. That all things, every providence that befalls the people of God is really conducive to their good. Because he is ruling, yes, he has dominion, yes, but he has dominion so that the church would indeed Receive grace, that she would indeed be preserved, that all things in providence would indeed work for her good. First Corinthians 15. We know that all things work together. Sorry, 1 Corinthians 15, for he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. That is all of his enemies and all of them of the enemies of the church. He reigns for this purpose. Yes, ultimately for the glory of God. But a necessary aspect of the Redeemer's kingship is that He would rule for the good of His people. Okay, guys, let me, let me just go back to that distinction we made before and highlight why that distinction between the essential and the economic kingship is so crucial. God absolutely considered. God considered without a redeemer will always always work for his glory but that does not mean in any sense that he will work for the good of a sinner this is a different kingship altogether we're not dealing here with God absolute God without Christ we're dealing with Christ as he rules for the good of his church um, and as Lord of Providence. Now that brings us to that third category. This kingship is moral. What do I mean by that? Well, what I mean by that is that Christ here possesses moral authority over moral rational creatures. So, when we think about kingship, uh, I think, or when we think about civil magistrates, generally speaking, even the lowest level, Often we don't distinguish today between power and authority. In the Greek, it would be dunamos and exousios. Dunamos, right? Dunamos is like dynamite, right? That's where we get the word. Brute force is what you and I should be thinking when we think of that word. And often when we think about the magistrate, I think we think about dunamos. We think about brute force. These are the guys that can come around and clobber you. They can throw you in prison, take away all kinds of money from you, by brute force. That's not what we're referring to in this case. Christ possesses a physical power, as His Lord of Providence over all things. That's undeniable. But what we're saying here is that Christ also possesses a moral authority over all rational creatures. And the implication for that, then, is that the rational creatures under which... Oh, sorry, over which France rules, have an obligation to submit to him. Of course, the text that I'm going to go through first of all is Psalm 2. The command serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Now, The words kiss the son" there refer to that act of obedience and and really that act of submission to the royal scepter. And what's striking here is, is that the text, Psalm 2, is really speaking to the very Gentile kings in the beginning of that psalm who are seeking to overthrow the rule of the Lord and His anointed. His anointed, literally the word in the Hebrew Messiah. He says here they have an obligation to kiss the psalm to submit to his kingly authority that is a moral command folks this is crucial and I I would like to go into greater detail this evening but I don't think we'll have time it's crucial for us to understand what the psalmist is saying he is not saying only that Christ exercises as Lord of Providence all things for the good of the church he is saying pointedly Rational creatures have an obligation. Even the kings, the Gentile kings of Psalm 2. Have an obligation to submit to Christ. And to submit to Christ as he is the Lord's anointed. As he is Zion's king. It's a crucial, crucial aspect. uh, That will help us understand why we are distinct in just a few moments. The other text that I'd have to go to. To show the moral authority of Christ is also another well-known text to us. It's the Great Commission at the end of Matthew's Gospel. Here the text reads, All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you all the way, even unto the end of the world. Now, note how the Great Commission is formed. The Great Commission starts with a proposition. Before he goes to his disciples, before he goes to the apostles, and urges them to preach, he lays the ground. Here is the ground. Says Christ, All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. The word power there, importantly, Is that idea of actual authority. And then he says. Go ye. Therefore. Into all. Nations. What is the entailment. From a text like that. Well the entailment is. I think really really clear. Isn't it. Here Christ is saying. If I am calling you. To baptize the nations. And then strikingly, to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. He is claiming moral authority over each of those nations to whom they are being sent. They have an obligation as nations to submit, as moral entities, moral corporate bodies, they have an obligation to submit to this teaching. Because all, he says, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. This is a universal kingship. It's a kingship that pertains to those physical aspects of providence that we've seen already. It's a kingship that shows to us how the Lord God will do good to his people, namely through Christ ruling for the good of his church. And it is a kingship that necessarily requires every rational creature to submit to it. They have a moral obligation to submit to his scepter. Now, as, I, as I'm watching the time go by here, I'll press forward by making some basic statements. Um, but uh, if, if I'm going too quickly, just, just stop me. Um, so when we think about this universal dominion of Christ, as it concerns all three of these categories, his rule in providence, his rule um, for the good of the church, and also his moral authority that extends over all national creatures, when we think about this, a number of distinctions have been introduced that Christ possesses two kingdoms that he possesses a kingdom of nature and a kingdom of grace and and, and certainly um, or a kingdom of power and a kingdom of grace is sometimes how it's referred to and, and sometimes uh, depending on who you read sometimes those distinctions are identical to the distinctions we've already made between the essential and the economic kingship of Christ sometimes those distinctions are employed to go a wee bit further in other words, to explain how Christ, as mediatorial king, exercises authority in this world. Uh, so I, I'll pass by that rather quickly um, and move on and really to answer that question: how are we supposed to think about this universal dominion? Um, and, and in order to do that, I really need to go back to what we've already said. ...about the two-kingdom aspect... uh, ...that belongs to Reformed theology. So, there are two powers... ...that the world has been given by God. Two moral authorities among men. There is the civil magistrate... ...and then there is the church. And as we've already said, of course... ...these two authorities... ...are distinct... ...not only in their institution... ...but distinct in their ends. One possesses a spiritual sword... ...a spiritual power... The other are temporal. Now, when we think about this, there's a, there's a major, major question that you and I have to ask. And that is, where do these two institutions come from? Maybe I can ask it a different way. When did these two institutions come into being? That's a very, very important question. It helps us understand how the mediatorial kingship of Christ. Is exercised today and should be thought of by us. So, when we think about these two institutions, there are two words that we should have in front of us. So, when we think about the church, we need to think about the church as it is an institution of grace. When we think of the institution of the civil magistrate, it is an institution of creation or nature. Now, why is that important? Well, first of all, I want you to think about this in terms of what we were talking about before regarding the be or even a Roman view of these two institutions. In both of those views, in both of those views, both institutions and both sorts that were given, were given by Christ as He is mediatorial king. Okay, so uh, let, me, let me maybe unpack that just a little. What Rome says is that these two, that these two swords have been given by Christ as Redeemer. This, they're not referring to the work of God absolute. This is the work of the Redeemer. He has given both swords to one institution, namely the Pope of Rome. And that institution, that institution... May then dispense of those swords as it sees fit. The Erassians simply reverse the order. The institution that receives the sword from Christ as mediator is the civil magistrate. Now, guys, when you think about that, there's an obvious, obvious entailment. Perhaps more so for the Erassians than Roman than the Roman Catholic. But nevertheless, both hold to it to some degree that these two institutions are institutions of grace. In other words, these institutions come to us strikingly and are exercised over us only because Jesus Christ is King as our Redeemer. Now guys, when you think about it in those terms, Maybe it doesn't strike us as being immediately problematic. But when we think about how the scriptures speak to us about these two institutions. The problems quickly abound, don't they? When was the civil magistrate established on the earth? I'll give you a hint. In Genesis 2. Before God... Creates Eve. What does Adam do? He names the animals, right? That is an that is an exercise of dominion, and of course that fill, that falls well with the dominion that God had said He would give to man in Genesis one. But the idea is is that man would possess these magisterial powers. From his creation. The magistrate, and you'll see this even as you go through the larger catechism when you come to the fifth commandment, the fifth commandment, which is part of the law of nature, that fifth commandment also requires submission to the civil magistrate. And the idea then is that civil magistracy, civil government, really is something that originates in creation. When does the church begin? Is the church a creation ordinance or institution? And the answer is no, isn't it? The church begins, of course, immediately as man requires salvation. So, when you look at these two institutions, it's necessary for us to see that the scriptures teach... One is a creation of nature. It belongs to man by virtue of his creation... The other is something that issues forth out of free grace alone, and is subsequent to man's creation. Now this may, this may seem like a distinction without a difference, but it really isn't. It really isn't. So when you think about these two institutions, when you think about grace, when you think about nature, and then you think about the rule of Christ over both, and again, think we're thinking of Christ as Redeemer. What does that mean for us? Well guys, when was Christ made king and head of the church? let start there. I'll give you i an, oh, I'll answer my own question here. Could the church ever exist without a king or a head? The answer is no. As soon as the church was, Christ was king and head of the church. And why is it necessary that that's the case? Well, it's necessary that that's the case because in order for Christ to be the priest and the prophet, he must also have the ability to subdue his own to himself and rule for their good. Now, if that's the case, when we think about the mediatorial location of Christ with regard to the church, can the church exist independent of Christ's redeeming purposes? Answer yes is no. Right, the church cannot exist apart from apart from the salvation that God has given to His own. If there is no salvation given, there is no church. If there are no redemptive purposes in Christ, there is no church. And so, when we talk about submission to Jesus Christ, we see here that submission on part on the part of the church. Belongs to her essence. In other words. If the church repudiates her king. If the church repudiates the one who is her head. Who, through, through whom alone salvation can come. She ceases to be a church. And she must. She severed herself from any real claim of legitimacy. And so obedience to Christ on behalf, of, on the part of the church belongs to her essence. If she doesn't submit to Christ, she ceases to exist as the church. But what about the civil ministry? Guys, this is so crucial. This is perhaps one of those things that I, I, I stress more than, more than most, but I, I do so because this is a crucial aspect of our theology. When we read in Psalm 2 that men are to submit, kings are to submit to Christ, what is the reason that the psalmist gives that they must do so? Exactly, right? The sense is, if these kings do not submit to Christ, are they uncings, if you will? answer is no. What is, as, as Jenny just said, what is promised to them is destruction. And so, what you see here on the board is, is exactly what you have in Psalm 2. Christ is king in Zion. And, and so, as Zion doesn't really exist apart from her king. But if the Gentile nations do not submit to Christ... The text doesn't say they cease to be kings. It says they will fall under his wrath. And so the church must submit to the kingship of Christ is to exist. But as we have in the kingdom of nature, or as we have in civil government, the nations must submit to Christ as Redeemer for their well-being. That's really the interpretation of the Latinists in the text here. The church must submit to Christ for her being. Civil magistrates, civil governments must submit to Christ as a redeemer for their well-being. Crucial, crucial distinction. Because guys, according to Rome, according to Rome, and according to Erasmus as well, if the civil magistrate fails, fails in every point to submit to Christ... They cease, they cease to be civil magistrates necessarily. And our, our position is not that. It never has been, and it never should be if we're holding the scriptures as we ought to be. Now, what we have here is Christ is given over, king of the nations, and they must submit for their well being. Now, as we think about this, there are a couple of op- there are a couple of things that we need to keep in front of us. So this is where we really get into our distinctive principles. So in this formulation that I have in front of us, I want you to notice the parity. This is a crucial aspect of our doctrine of mutual kingship. Which one is head over the other? Neither, right? Neither. There is no no superiority of the church over the temporal matters of the state. And there is no superiority of the state over the spiritual matters of the church. These are institutions that have different spheres, to use the the watchword of the late um, eighteenth 19th century. Different spheres of dominion. Now if we think about it in those terms... Then, when we think about the spiritual jurisdiction of the church, she must, in this formulation, be what you could call spiritually independent. In other words, when it concerns these matters that relate to her calling, she must, she must possess spiritual liberty. That is no coercion from the civil magistrate in matters spiritual. She must possess this spiritual independence. Now, we are not the only ones who believe that. Um, most of you would be familiar, of course, with the Free Church of Scotland, for instance. The Free Church of Scotland, 1643, the Great Disruption is really occasioned over discussion of the spiritual independence of the church, in fact. In many ways, that's when that two-word phrase comes into prominence. The idea there is, of course, that they are they were unwilling to abide any longer the intervention of civil magistrates, i.e. nobles, to determine who would be ministers in a given parish. And so, for the spiritual independence of the church, they left the, the residual church of Scotland and formed what we now know as the free church. This is not something unique to us, but it is something that is very, very important to us. The church is, in matters of spiritual free, must be free from coercion from civil power. And I'll, I think this would perhaps be a good point for me to delve into a distinction between um, the powers of the magistrate, circa sacra, and the powers of the magistrate in sacra. Um, but I think, I think I might wait, actually, until we get into our last lecture in the history of the church to, to talk about ways in which... Um, the temporal matters of the church also belong, in some sense, to the concerns of the civil magistrate. But we'll, we'll just pass by that for now. The next aspect of this, though, another corollary like, that flows from this division of, of these two powers, is that the nations as nations, again, because Christ possesses this moral authority, and because it belongs to their well-being to do so, they must submit to Christ. Now, I could go back to Psalm 2, but I could also go back to a number of texts that we would considered when we were thinking about covenant renewal. These texts hold out to us that the act of kissing the Son, swearing, swearing obedience to Christ, is something that is promised in the prophets to the new covenant age. That what you will find is because Christ has been given all power and authority over all things on the earth because he is Zion's king to whom all, all the kings of the earth must make obeisance because he is such they must solemnly recognize this and will do so through solemn vows. Covenant. The idea is is that and and this is something that gets us perhaps a bit closer to principles that are distinct to the Reformed Presbyterian Church but, but not even just quite yet. The idea is, is that because Christ is King, this act of kissing the Son by vowing to be His, to be His as He is Redeemer, well that's a necessary aspect, a necessary aspect or corollary of what we've just been speaking of. Because Christ is mediatorial King, The nations must be in covenant with him. And will be according to the prophets. Um, If we have time at the end. I'll read a few of the texts. That I have down here. With regard to that. But I'll hasten on to another aspect. So if these nations are to publicly confess Christ. And to be engaged in covenant with Christ. As His king, Of course that has some respect. Then to the church. Now. Um, I'm an American, um, well, if I don't know if I'll claim to be an American much longer, or if they'll even want to claim me, but, but uh, in America, of course, this next, next aspect of the interrelationship of Christ is something that is just, just considered um, reprehensible. Um, and that's the idea that, that because these magistrates are obliged to Christ, they must then secure the well being of the church in, her, in their land. This leads us to the idea of a civil establishment of the church. Um, and Reformed Presbyterians, I want you to understand this, are not, have not been historically, and thankfully, um, uh, uh, at least in Ireland, Scotland, and Australia, um, to a lesser sense in America, but. The Reformed Presbyterians have maintained that the civil magistrate has a special obligation to secure the Church of Jesus Christ in the land, temporarily. Now that means a number of things, and, and again, I, as far as particulars go, I think it's probably best to deal with those particulars when we come to church history. But part of that is necessarily that there will be one church one church civilly recognized in the land because beloved if we're thinking as we ought to be spiritually if we're thinking about heresy as we ought to be thinking about it well which is more dangerous to the church of Jesus Christ men who would destroy the body or men who would destroy the soul isn't it obviously the latter and if the civil magistrate, then, is called to secure the well-being of the church, it must be within his prerogative to use the sword that has been entrusted to him to protect her, not only from physical harm, but also to use that sword against those who would be her enemies, those who would seek to, to deceive souls. Um, so, a civilly established church is a necessary corollary of the mediatorial dominion of Christ. Now, thirdly and finally, and this is really the preparation for our, our time together at the end of the month, we're coming to a subject that really tells us why we, as Reform Presbyterians, are distinct. And you, you probably came here thinking, you know, Jerry's going to talk for an hour and a half, and we're all going to learn about all these various things that are distinct about us. And I have to say to you, nothing that I've said to you before Um, Well, almost nothing that I've said to you before is really only distinct to us. Uh, You could find some uh, denominations in the history of the church that maintain things at least up to this point. But here is where we become really the odd man out. Okay, so I told you that we're going to be thinking about original distinctives, so let's talk about original distinctives now. In light of everything that I've just said in light of all that we've said about the mediatorial kingship of Christ and the obligations that fall upon the nations because of that dominion we come to the subject of the nation that has become Christian and we ask ourselves the question what relationship then does such a nation have to this scepter that Christ holds ok well to answer that question, we need to go back and we need to ask another question, that is, how does a nation necessarily become a Christian? And and to do that, we need to ask the question of moral identity. What I mean by that is corporate moral identity, right? At what point can we say a nation has done or become something morally? And there are two ways that we think about corporate moral identity. Now, there are three ways that we think about corporate moral guilt, if you remember back um, as I'm sure you all do, to our, our first lecture on COVID renewal. Um, I'll ask you on the way out uh, to tell me what all three of those points were, but because um, uh, I trust you all to this case is not here. So um, the first point that influences the moral identity, the moral identity of the corporate body, is the idea that almost everyone in the country, or any, everyone in the body, has done or is doing a particular thing. Okay, so we're all in this together. That's the idea. So if the majority of a nation, if the majority of the nation comes together, and, and it's important for me to say this, that it's the majority of the nation as, as vox populi, as, as the voice of the people, as they come together and profess faith in Christ, by these principles they are called then A Christian nation. So, as you go throughout the scriptures, you'll see that God deals with people just in this way. You'll see that God deals with nations as a whole if the majority of that nation has given themselves to a particular activity or has covenanted in a particular way. So, if the majority of the nation has become Christian, it's entirely right for us to say this is a Christian nation. It's rather straightforward. But there's another way as well. And, and this is a crucial aspect of the canvas. A, a nation becomes a Christian nation also whenever its civil representatives on behalf of the nation in their civil capacities submit to Christ after. So these are the two ways that a nation becomes, that we should be called, a Christian nation if the majority of a people profess to be be Christians, if the majority of people profess to be Christians, or if the civil representatives of that body have professed faith in Christ, that nation is to be considered Christian. Now, that answers the first part of the question, But it hasn't answered our original question, has it? This tells us how we're supposed to understand what a Christian nation is. But our original question is, what is the obligation of a Christian nation to Christ's scepter? Now, I I keep putting these things off to the next lecture, so I I don't want to keep doing it. But um, I think I'll have to be rather brief. When we think about the civil magistrate as he is a creature of nature, that is, as he is occupying an the institution that is a creation ordinance, you and I understand that that at the end of the day, if that magistrate never never submits to Christ's scepter, he is still called a king in Psalm two but if he and the nation do not submit, they are promised destruction, because by refusing Christ, of course, they are welcoming his judgment. That's rather straightforward. I want to ask another question. If, If the civil magistrate and if the nation comes under the light of the gospel, such that, let's say, Let's say the case on the left hand becomes true, and the majority of that people become Christian. What does the law of nature require of the civil magistrate? Now this is a complex question, um, but, but it's an important question that I'll, I'll, I'll briefly run through here. The law of nature, according to Romans 2, is identical with the Ten Commandments. Now, the law of nature, of course, is imprinted in man's heart. Everybody knows what the Apostle says. But when when we encounter then the revelation of God, let's let's say we're paying. Say we're paying and suddenly somebody comes to us and shares with us the gospel of Jesus Christ. When that gospel is revealed to us, what does the law of nature require us to do in response to that? And the answer to that is... The same as what does the first commandment require us to do when God speaks? To submit, submit, right? Exactly. So so here's the idea. When a nation hears the gospel, comes under earshot of the claims of Jesus Christ, the law of nature, which is the foundation of His rule as a creation ordinance, requires him to submit to the special revelation that he's just heard. If, if that nation and this is so striking if that nation hears hears the gospel but rejects it are they doing violence only to special revelation them? no they're violating nothing less than the law of nature itself and that does strike that does strike at the heart of the history. We'll get into the implications of that uh, in the next next lecture. But, but the point is, the law of nature that grounds the civil magistracy actually requires the magistrate to submit. Okay, that's all, all well and good. And, of course, in the Lord's grace, what have the nations done? Well, strikingly, really, from, you could say, 325, I think 378 would be more accurate. But the Western Hemisphere, the civilized world, submitted to Christ remember Constantine, and following therefrom, with with a few exceptions, like Julian the Apostate and others excluded, but they have submitted by profession to the proclamation of the gospel. And so they have, by profession, become Christian nations. Now, when we think about this, and this is I'm really only warming to our distinction here after an hour and a half, but... Um, when we think about this, guys, you and I live in a Christian nation. No, it, 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 it's, it's remarkable, isn't it, that the world absolutely hates the thought, but according to corporate moral identity, we are still a Christian nation. Uh, and despite all that the news reporters portons never really tell you, we still profess to be a Christian nation. And the reality is, those common obligations that we made in centuries before, they are still binding. I'm referring back to our discussion on the coming renewal to go over that, but we remain a Christian nation. So, what do we think of government? that comes over us. That will not submit to Christ. That's the crucial question. What do we do in a Christian nation when Christians do not rule over us? What do we do in a Christian nation whenever covenant obligations that actually influence the identity of who is to rule over us are ignored? Historically, the Reformed Presbyterian response to that question is very simple. In a Christian nation, in a non-Christian government, or even if it's a professing Christian government, but a government that does not answer the ends of its covenant obligations, if that government comes into power, it is not to be recognized as a legitimate authority. Now, in the Reformed Presbyterian Church, and I need to say this, um, this position has been relaxed and modified in various ways. The original position can still be whole in our testimony. The language is is there. But originally, um, notwithstanding these changes more laterally, originally this is why we exist. As we think of the kingship of Christ as it pertains to a Christian nation, the Reformed Presbyterian Church separated itself from the Church of Scotland, or rather never joined the revolution settlement of the Church of Scotland, because, on two counts, they saw the Mediatorial Kingship of Christ entirely, entirely contradicted. By the Church of Scotland for various reasons, but also by the Kingdom of Scotland at that time, before the Act of Union, the Kingdom of Scotland... And all of Great Britain, together with them, refused to acknowledge those obligations that they already entered into the previous century and even before them, and so forfeited the right to be called a legitimate magistrate in Christian land. Now, I I have um, I have blabbed for a good wee while here, and um, I I know that I've. I've gone through a whole host of distinctions and thrown in Latin as well. So I want to stop here and ask if if you have any questions, um, comments, or complaints. I suppose I'll take as well. But um, any anything that um, anything you would like me to, to maybe review or anything I didn't cover that you think I should cover. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a very good question and I think, I think when we think about corporate moral identity one of the best analogies I've found is actually the analogy of let's say a, a baptized person um, who never comes to faith or, or maybe who or, or never professes faith Or maybe one who professes faith and then apostatizes. Scripturally speaking, how do we think of such a one? Well, as we look at this person, as they leave the church, as they repudiate um, their baptism and perhaps a profession of faith, what they've done, well, they look no longer Christian, obviously, they look like the rest of the world. But scripturally speaking, are they, do they hold the same status as, for instance, um, a person who's never heard the gospel? The answer is no, right? Because when you come to the end of 2 Peter 2, Peter says it's actually worse for those ones who have heard or have professed faith to have known these things and then to have rejected them, Right? So Peter's thinking is the moral identity of somebody who has professed faith in the past and then has repudiated it, even if they're doing nothing different than the rest of the world, is still worse, right? Because their identity remains. So to draw the analogy to a corporate body, right? We as a, corp- as a nation will never be a pagan nation again. The only status we can hold is an apostate nation now. If we refuse the gospel today, um, and we certainly are, and I mean, the, the statistic just came out, I think, um, was it last month, that now the, the majority of people in the United Kingdom don't profess faith. Um, when polls like that come out to us, that tells us that we have apostatized, and so we now hold the moral status of an apostate. Which means then that the moral obligations actually haven't gone away. It's just our moral identity has changed. So, I I don't know if I'm maybe answering the question very helpfully. Um, So let me try it another way. (laughs) Um, So is there ever a point where we can say we've returned to our pagan past? The answer is strikingly no. No. We we can never expunge our corporate guilt for rejecting the gospel that once we profess. Uh, just like the apostate can't say, "Well, I, I deserve to hold the status of a pagan who knew no better," right? So, we always, in a moral sense, will and must be considered a Christian nation. Um, and and uh, even if we hold, even if we hold the status of an apostate. Those obligations that fall on the Christian nation are nonetheless diminished for the present. Mm. Any any other questions?
1: That's a very good
0: question. So. A number of folks have answered that differently. Um, I was just reading William Twist. who was a Westminster divine, and he uh, he was very eager to say it was not a Christian church because of that. Um, most of the Westminster divines came on the side that it still was a, a Christian church, and I'd be inclined to hold that position, um, in part because if you take if you take the likes of James Usher... Or other godly. Church of Ireland or Church of England. Men in the past. They understood that the king was head of the church. Not in an absolute sense. They still maintained that Christ. Was above the king. Now we disagree with that formulation. Certainly. Um, But as far as the godly. In the Church of England. And the men like Thomas Cranmer. Who really um, codified their theology. Originally. um, Their constitution should be read. As saying that Christ is actually above the king, and if we consider it that way, certainly um, we could still say was. Um, if we consider it in various other ways, if we think about, um, we, if we think about uh, the doctrine and the practice that is now present in the Church of England, um, that raises very different questions. Um, so. I think it's. It, it, if we narrow our focus just on the question of can a, can a church disagree with our formulation of the two kingdoms view of the authority of the church um, and still be a true church, I would say the answer to that question is yes. Anyone else? So, as I close here, um, I want to give you maybe a wee little taste of what's to come. So, I, I've been holding um, these classes, I said to you at the beginning of this class, with a very basic, and a really narrow kind of uh, focus on hopefully demonstrating from the Word of God, but, but, but also setting before you the idea that. The things that we're talking about in this, in this time, these things are not my private opinion. Um, these things have been things that we have attained to as a church. And my last point that I, I didn't really cover, but something that um, I'll allude to now that really heavily emphasize in the lecture to come, is that third aspect of my focus, and that is showing that these things are necessary and so necessary that it's right for us legitimate for us to, to be a distinct institution, to be uh, I don't like the term denomination, but but a, a different denomination than those who disagree with us on those points. But to kind of prepare us for that time, I want you to think about that last point that we just discussed. I want you to think about the implications of how Reformed Presbyterians originally thought For instance, about the civil government. I want you to think about how that original position could create difficulties, practical difficulties, in a church that you disagree with them. For instance, and this is actually a historical, historical example, what do you do if you're a Christian who holds to the view that That the current civil magistrate, for the reasons we just discussed, is not a legitimate magistrate. What do you do if your minister prays, for instance, for the king as a king? Or let you reverse the question? What do you do if you're a minister or an elder and somebody in your congregation refuses to recognize the authority of one who you say is a lawful authority? The magistrate of Romans 13. Creates a lot of problems, doesn't it? Crucial, crucial problems. If we continue to think about those kinds of difficulties, I think that will prepare us best to understand then the history that we'll take up at the end of this month. Um, But I'll close with just another, and a final thought. When we think about the mediator occasion of Christ. Um, it's very helpful to remember, um, moving really beyond their distinctions and more to a general understanding of the doctrine. It's helpful to remember that the one who now sits and reigns over all reigns, yes, as a king but he reigns no less as the sympathetic high priest that we read of in Hebrews 2 and in Hebrews 4. Our king is one who possesses entire rule over all providence, but he's one who rules as Zion's king and for the good of his people as a sympathetic ruler. Well, but that should hearten us and encourage us especially now. The kings of this earth, even the best of them, were aloof from their meanest subjects. Not so Christ. Not so Christ. And beloved, that should be an encouragement through us um, as we go out into a world um, that is ruled by the Son of Man who sits upon this throne. Let's... Let's close our time this evening by going back to the prayer of grace together. Let's, let's stand here. Eternal and ever blessed God, we come, mindful Father, that even today, even in the past set of hours, we have sinned in thought, in word, and in deed that we have shown time and again that we deserve no good thing and yet Father as we come and as we leave a subject such as this that holds out so many precious promises promises that Zion's king really rules for the good of his own that he remains for her her husband and her Lord Father these things should rejoice our hearts and we pray that by your grace they would we ask that we would rejoice to be to be under his rule that we would renew renew our obedience that we would be pleased to submit ourselves freshly and daily to his supper Father we ask that you would cause us more and more to be subdued to him For the ministration of your spirit. And Lord, we ask for each one that's gathered here tonight, that you would be with them. Lord, as we've contemplated complex issues, we pray that each heart would take home, even this evening, the great joy that we may have to say that he who is our elder brother, he who is our ever-sympathetic high priest, is also our king and rules for you over us and in us for our good and for his glory bless us gracious God in his ways we pray and we do ask as well that you be with us as a congregation as we, we worship in the Lord day morning and evening we ask that you bless the one who would come to us and bring to us the word of God and we pray that we would find in this time that we will find Christ. Lord, we pray that you be merciful to us. Prepare us for that time. And be gracious to us, we pray, in all things. We ask all in Jesus' blessing. Amen.